Well, good morning, everyone. Good, good. It's good to see you. I'm glad you're here in Waco Hall for Chapel today. Before we get started, as usual on Monday, we have just a couple of announcements, and I want to introduce to you some of your leaders from student government. This is Kelly Rapp and Zach Rogers. Student government believes in the truth of the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. Within the last few years, people across the McLennan County have joined forces to positively impact education. The Waco community has come together to, as a village to raise up the children, and it's important that we, as Baylor students, join the village. And in order to do that, um, the cabinet of the external vice president is hosting an event called Community Coffee House this Thursday, January 28th at 7 p.m. in the Barfield Drawing Room to engage students in the community-wide effort and community-wide dialogue surrounding education in Waco. Um, a local principal will come in, and he's going to tell us about the, the needs and uh, all the, uh, the things that need to be done to like, enhance the education um, opportunity for all the elementary education uh, people in Waco. And we're going to uh, see how um, Baylor has already um, had initiatives and things in, in, in store um, addressing those needs. And so uh, we would love for all you to come. All of you are invited, and it's this Thursday, January 28th at 7 p.m. in the Barfield Drawing Room, and we'll have free Common Grounds coffee and cookies. Thank you so much, and look forward to seeing you there. <clears throat> Baylor really is trying to be responsive, and I'm so glad that you all are responsive to what's going on in our community and our world. This is Kelly Oliver and Tiffany Lambert. They are freshmen. And they're here to tell you about something that they've uh, taken an initiative, <laughs> initiative with related to Haiti. Okay, hi, I'm Kelly, and this is Tiffany. And um, we're going to tell you about something that we've kind of put together with another group um, of our friends. Um, last Sunday, me and Tiffany were at dinner, and on the news, a story about Haiti came on. And we were watching it, and I guess it just kind of got to us, and we realized exactly like how bad it was over there. And so we started talking and trying to figure out stuff that we could do, and we came up with the idea of a benefit dance for Haiti. So we asked a group of our guy friends to see if they could help us, and they agreed. And then we also emailed UBC, we both go there, and we asked if we could use the church possibly to have the dance at, and they agreed. So this whole week we've just been kind of working on stuff, and it's going to be this Saturday from 9 to 3, and it's going to be 9 to 12, not 3. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> it's going to be this Saturday, 9 to 12, and it's $5, um, and all the money's going to go to Haiti, and it's going to be a lot of fun. The theme is Heroes for Haiti, so you can dress up if you want to, <laughs> and um, it's going to be a lot of fun, but we really want y'all to know where the money's going to, because that's like the whole reason for the dance, and we want y'all to know exactly like what you're helping, so Tiffany here is going to tell y'all about that. Okay, so um, you guys probably know how devastated Haiti is right now. Um, it's one, it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and um, it's estimated that up to 200,000 people have died from this, and thousands of people are um, misplaced. They have nowhere to go. So um, they're f um, fleeing from Port-au-Prince, which is where the earthquake happened, to St. Mark, which is about an hour away. And um, the money that we raise is going to Youth with a Mission, uh, or YWAM, in Haiti. Um, and they were put in charge by the UN and the mayor of St. Mark to register all the refugees who are displaced and to find out what their needs are and to start meeting them. So 
the money that we give will go straight to the refugees, getting them food, water, um, shelter, all of that. So there's like almost 3,000 or more refugees in Haiti right now that need our help. So we're going to just go have fun dancing and pay $5, and it goes to help people in need. So it's really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Let's begin our chapel hour with a word of prayer. God, we're here at the beginning of another day, and we receive it as a gift from you. All that will come our way in this day and in this hour is a gift to us, and so we open our hearts to it and pray that we might be alert and awake to what it is that you might say to us. We're grateful for so many students who care so very much, and we pray that the initiatives that are taking place in these days will have your blessing. And bless this hour. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Alan Jacobs is here on the campus with us today as a guest to Baylor University and certainly to University Chapel. He is a professor at Wheaton College. And Alan's research does the kind of thing that people at Baylor are very interested in. He's primarily, as he teaches and he writes, thinking in terms of how it is that the, the life of Christian faith, uh, Christian theology comes together with literature. We're interested in those kind of intersections here at Baylor, where people are, who, who think about the faith are also thinking about their discipline in some way. So how is it that the Christian mind comes together with the political mind or, or the Christian way of viewing the world comes together uh, with the business life, those kinds of things. Uh, Alan does that in particular as literature and things of word and, and uh, expression are connecting with the life of faith and certainly with the church. He grew up in the South. He's a graduate of both Alabama and the University of Virginia, and after finishing his studies there, has been at Wheaton College for a long time. He is on campus not only to be uh, in chapel with us, but he is lecturing this afternoon at 5 o'clock in the Alexander Reading Room, and some of you may want to join him there. The, the title of his lecture is The End of the Book and the Future of Reading. So he's particularly interested these days in how the digital reality impacts us as people of word and certainly in, in the church. You're going to enjoy what Alan has to say. Be a student here this morning. I mean, be committed to that, to hearing and to learning, and also to welcoming him. Be hospitable to this one who is among us. He's our guest, and you get to welcome him to the Baylor community and the University Chapel. So would you do that with me now? Thank you, Bart. Good morning, y'all. Does he always pray for people to be alert and awake, or is that just because I'm talking? I'm kind of, I was a little nervous about that particular prayer. Hope that's a regular thing. Um, I bring you greetings from the chilly northern Midwest. Um, I've been there for a long time, as he said, but I grew up in Alabama, and it's still not natural to me. So I'm not really looking forward to going back into the 20-degree weather. I think it's about 20 degrees right now around my house, and uh, I might just take refuge here in Waco for a little while longer, but uh, I do bring you greetings, and I want to let you know that um, as much as I admire Baylor and as many wonderful things as, uh, go on at Baylor, there is a real deficiency, I think, and the deficiency is in the number of opportunities you have to go to chapel. 
at Wheaton. Uh, chapel is three days a week, mandatory for all four years that you're there. So uh, if you guys are feeling the chapel shortage, I want to encourage you to think about transferring, you know, to come up there in the 20-degree weather and go to chapel all the time. Doesn't that sound appealing? Does that sound like what you want to do? So I just want to you know that there are opportunities available to you. So I'm bringing you a good word there. I'm bringing you a word of encouragement, a word of possibility. And so also, as I'm thinking about what I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about today, I thought I'd bring a word of encouragement and possibility and what would be a cheery positive topic, and I decided that the cheeriest and most positive topic I could think about was martyrdom. So I'm going to talk to you about martyrdom today. So if you want to get happy, this is the place to be uh, as we discuss that. Many of you will know the wonderful Georgia writer Flannery O'Connor, and uh, O'Connor has a terrific story called the, the Temple of the Holy Ghost. It's a story about two little Catholic girls who are undergoing their catechism, being trained in the Catholic faith, and they have a teacher who is always telling, reminding them that they are temples of the Holy Ghost, so they call each other Temple One and Temple Two. And um, one of them is really eager to make a difference in the world. She wants to grow up and be something special, and she wants to be something special for God, but she's not really sure what exactly it is that she's called to do or that she might be able to do. So at one point, she thinks to herself, she knew she couldn't be a saint, but she thought she could be a martyr if they killed her quick. And so that's what she decides that she's going to do. She's going to be a martyr. She starts laying plans for being a martyr. And as I'm reading that story, I'm thinking, is that, is, can you actually plan that? Can you, you know, can you decide you're going to be a martyr? Because it seems to me there's a flaw in the logic here. And, and the flaw in the logic is that if you're going to be a martyr, don't you have to have cooperation from somebody? I mean, doesn't somebody have to be willing to kill you? If you don't have somebody who's willing to kill you, then the whole martyrdom thing is never going to come off. So she's really counting on a lot. I mean, she might determine to be a martyr, but then, you know, she's got to recruit the help. Uh, and what if instead of killing her, they just laugh at her? Or what if instead of killing her, they just send her out of town and tell her she can't come back or ban her from the country? I don't know whether you can choose to be a martyr. Seems like an odd thing when you think about it. And yet, there are people who have suggested that you can. Maybe not quite in that girl's sense, but in another sense. Way back in the 7th century in Ireland, there was a community of Christians, or several communities of Christians, we're very interesting and thoughtful about what it means to be a Christian community. And there are some handful of documents that survive from that time. And one of them is a very interesting little fragmentary piece that talks about this very question. And this piece says there are three kinds of martyrdom which are available to us as Christians. The first one, this document says, is the red martyrdom. And that's the one that the girl was talking about the martyrdom in which you shed your blood for the sake of the gospel. That one we all know. And in fact, we generally tend to, when we think of martyrdom, that's what we think of, the red martyrdom. But these people said there are two other kinds of martyrdom. Um, and this is where it gets a little fuzzy because one they say is the green martyrdom, unless that word in ancient Celtic means blue. So it's either green or blue. We don't know which one. But let's say green. 
the green martyrdom. The green martyrdom is one, they say, in which you are able to, with, you are able to cultivate a set of disciplines of prayer, fasting, labor, and through your work, you become a kind of martyr. The other, it's a little fuzzy. The outlines are a little fuzzy, and people aren't quite sure exactly what that applies to, and so many people have thought that that's what monks are doing, that they are creating a kind of a framework of discipline, monks and nuns, creating a kind of a framework of discipline, and that's their martyrdom. There's the green martyrdom. And then there's one that's even odder, they call the white martyrdom. And the white martyrdom is the one in which they say you give up everything that you love, everything that you own and everything that you love for the sake of the gospel. Now what does that mean? Well, many people have taken that to mean over the centuries a kind of hermetic life, you know, going off and living in isolation, the life of a hermit. In fact, some people have suggested that many of the, uh, these old Celtic sailors who would just kind of launch out into the sea uh, in the, covered with white mist, that they were engaged in a kind of a white martyrdom, just seeing where the, the sea would take them and whether they might be able to, uh, in some way, bear witness to the gospel. And that's the key, that phrase that I just uttered, bear witness to the gospel. Because it turns out that these people are saying, well, I guess you can, to some degree, at least in some cases, choose your martyrdom. You, can choose, you can't choose the red martyrdom. That comes to you. You can choose how you're going to respond. For instance, if someone threatens you with death unless you repudiate the gospel, you do have the opportunity to repudiate the gospel. So you have some degree of choice about how you're going to respond. You just don't have a choice about whether that comes to you or not. But these other martyrdoms, the green martyrdom and the white martyrdom, it seems as though you can choose. And the reason that that makes sense is that the word martyr is actually an old Greek word that means a witness. A martyr is a witness. And the way in which the people who undergo the red martyrdom are bearing witness is by continuing to profess the gospel of Jesus Christ even under threat of death. And that's really what the girl had in mind who wanted to be. She wanted to be a red martyr, right? Because she thought she could be a martyr if they killed her quick. What's appealing to her is the idea of a martyrdom that is the result of the choice of a moment and then a quick resolution. What she says she can't do is to be a saint because she knows that being a, a saint is a kind of a long-term endeavor. You, know? <laughs> you can't just be a saint for a little while. You, know? you can't just be, I'm going to be a saint for the next half hour. You, know? um, you don't get to be saint, a saint unless you extend it over time. She thinks you don't have to do that as a martyr, but you know, here's the thing. If you, if you choose either the white martyrdom or the green martyrdom, that's just as bad as being a saint. <laughs> That's a long-term endeavor. It's bearing witness in a long, slow, difficult process. So some martyrdoms come to us whether we want them or not. Some we have to choose. And I think that what I want to emphasize to you today is the martyrdoms that come to us whether we want it or not. 
and what happens when those come upon us. Let's take a couple of examples. There is a kind of martyrdom which you would undergo if you were a faithful Christian in China today. The Christians in China are under constant surveillance by the government. Their churches are often shut down. If they're not shut down, they are pressured to conform to the government's um, uh, teachings and rulings and preferences in certain ways. And being a witness to the gospel in that case is challenging. Your life is continually um, under some danger, perhaps not of immediate death, but certainly imprisonment. Imprisonment is something can happen, that can happen to you. The dissolution of your community, being forcibly removed from people you love and moved elsewhere, those are things that can happen to you. I think we could call that a martyrdom. Might not be death, but it is an opportunity to bear witness under seriously difficult circumstances. Or think, for instance, about a story that I heard from um, a reporter just a couple of days after the earthquake in Haiti. This reporter um, commented that within hours of the earthquake, in the midst of the rubble, you could hear parties of Christians who had banded together to sing songs of praise to God. Now, that's bearing witness in an extraordinarily difficult set of circumstances. You could call that a martyrdom, couldn't you? Sure seems like it to me. And when we think about Christians in those kinds of environments, when we think about Christians in China or in Haiti, we think about laboring under persecution or under the threat of death from natural disaster and corruption or whatever, I think we're inclined to think we have it pretty easy. And in most respects, that's true. In most respects, we do have it pretty easy. Does that mean, then, that there's no martyrdom available to us? Well, I actually think that there is a kind of martyrdom that's not just available to us, but it's a martyrdom that is actually imposed on everyone in this room. It's one that we all have to figure out how to respond to. It's one that we don't get to repudiate. To understand what that martyrdom is, I think we have to use another sort of historical comparison. I don't suppose there's ever been a time in which it was easy to be a Christian, and I don't mean to suggest that there was. But the challenges are different in different places and different times. Imagine if you were a Christian in medieval England or France or Germany. Imagine that you were in the, living in the 14th century instead of the 21st. Whatever the challenges that you faced, one thing that is, in, is interesting is that you almost certainly would never have met someone who was not a Christian, at least in your culture's understanding of being a Christian. If you lived in the city, you might, and very few people did in those days, 90% of the population lived in the countryside and in the small towns in medieval Europe. If you had lived in a city, you might have met one or two Jews. Maybe. 
the only thing you would know about Islam is that it is the great threat down there to the south and east that wants to overthrow Christendom. That's the, how you would have understood it. There would be, you would be aware of the Crusades and of the ways in which some of them had succeeded and some had failed, but you never would have met a Muslim. You would not even be aware of the existence of any other religions, any other particular beliefs. It would all be completely alien to you. Christianity would be, for you, all there is. Now, again, you would have challenges. But I wonder how seriously you would be able to question the fundamental truth of the Christian story. Everything around you would testify to it in one way or another. Your whole life would be built around the structures of the church. You wouldn't think of time in terms of January, February, March. You would think of times in terms of the seasons of the church year. It's Advent, and then it's Christmas, and then it's Epiphany, and then it's Lent. That's how you would think about time. You would think about the holy days of the church. The bells would ring every day to tell you when you needed to go to prayer or go to Mass. Everything around you would be testifying to the truth of the Christian story, and you wouldn't hear any dissenting voices. You would never hear them. Now, you might hear voices who would dissent from a particular interpretation of Christianity, but those voices would all be within that general orbit. Compare that to our situation. Every day, every day, we are confronted in one way or another with people who do not believe in any religion or who believe in religions other than Christianity. Every day there is something in our environment to remind us that there are more people in this world who disbelieve in the Lordship of Jesus Christ than who believe. Every day. Every day we hear it. Every day we have to deal with it. The people who are often called the new atheists uh, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris. Their books are on the bestseller lists. They're in every bookstore that you would enter. Every day we are reminded that we don't have to be Christians. And I could give you, of course, 20 or 30 other examples of how we are reminded of it. In an environment such as that, the challenge that faces us, the martyrdom that faces us is not the martyrdom of persecution or the martyrdom, martyrdom of terrible poverty or the martyrdom of complacency, but instead the martyrdom of doubt. Doubt is not for us what it would have been for that imaginary medieval Christian that I talked about a little while ago. Martyrdom for, uh, for him, if, he, if it came upon him, it would be radically different than anything that we have to face. And doubt would have been a very different kind of doubt. He would never have had to be confronted, as we are confronted regularly, with somebody saying, there is no God. Or someone saying, there may be a God, but not the God of Jesus Christ. Doubt for us is almost like our daily bread, kind of nasty bread. But it's the bread that we have to eat. It is the air that we have to breathe. It's the martyrdom that we have been called to. 
I think there is a widespread failure in the church to recognize this because I think there is a widespread failure, a tendency in the church to think one of two things about doubt. The first is that doubts are always terrible things and it's a sign of your deficiency as a Christian, your shortcomings as a Christian if you have them. And I think that that is more common than anything else so that we come to internalize the idea that our doubts are shameful. But then there's a kind of a minority view that at least I've seen a good bit over the years, people who are kind of proud of their doubts, you know, and who say, well, I have doubts because I'm a thinking person. Those people who have great faith, you know, or who seem to have great faith are just people who have never thought seriously. And I'm, I think seriously, and since I think seriously, I have doubts. That actually is it's often true that people who do think seriously do have more doubts. And I'm, I'm just not sure that that's something you should be proud of. That is, I'm not, something, I'm not sure that's something you should say, that makes me better than my neighbor. Maybe your neighbor who seems to have great faith really does have great faith, and maybe that's a gift from God. Uh, I, have, I know of people who are just as thoughtful as I am who have been given by God a greater gift of faith than I've been given. I also know that one of the reasons they have a greater faith is that they are more faithful in their practice of Christianity so, than, than I often am. So, you know, there's two sides to that story at least. But it just seems to me that neither of those ways of thinking about it is right. I mean, doubts are not something to be ashamed of, nor are they something to celebrate. Yes, you know, I am better than these other people because of the, the number and the seriousness of the doubts that I have. It's always worth remembering, you know, that Jesus was very compassionate to those who doubted. One of the great cries in Scripture is the man who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But it's also the case that he praised the centurion. Remember the, the, the guy that we sometimes call the say but the word centurion, you know, the one who says, no, Lord, you don't need to go and heal my servant. Just say, say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. And he celebrates that. He loves that. He, he loves faith. But he is compassionate and kind and forgiving towards those who are afflicted by doubt as well. Think about how, generous, how generously he treats Thomas. Doubting Thomas, we call him, right? And he says, I won't believe unless I see. And Jesus says, well, okay, well, then let me show you. <laughs> and he's very gracious and forbearing with those who doubt. And he celebrates those who have great faith. Because of that, I don't think doubt is something to be ashamed of, and I don't think it's something to celebrate. Instead, I think of it as our martyrdom. It is what we all have to deal with whether we like it or not. It is part, again, the air we breathe. There's no way to get away from it. And we need to accept that. It is, the, it is the, what, what has been given to us. And then the question becomes, what do we do with it? What do we do about it? I think the first thing that we do is to strive to stay away from either self-blame or self-praise and instead focus on what, it might, what we might need in order to have greater faith, even while we're assaulted by doubts. In relation to that, I just have a couple of really simple things that I want to say to you, maybe even really just one that's at the heart of the matter. And that is this, that I don't usually think of Woody Allen as a source of wisdom, but I think there is one thing that he said that was really wise. He said 90% of life is just showing up. 
And it's really true. There is so much that you can do and that so much that God can do through you when you just show up. And what I would ask you to do is, spiritually and in the life of prayer, is just show up. Here's the thing that you cannot do for yourself. You cannot create in yourself a full heart. That is, you cannot create in yourself by trying to a full-hearted, celebrative, excited affirmation that Jesus is Lord. You can't control whether when you say the Lord's Prayer, you mean it with all your heart and you feel the truth of it. If that ever happens to you, if you say the Lord's Prayer in such a way that you mean it with all your heart and you feel the truth of it in your bones, that's because God has given you a wonderful gift. What you can control is whether or not you say the Lord's Prayer. And sometimes all you are going to have is the words. You won't have the feelings. You won't have the commitment. You won't have the wholehearted affirmation. But you can still have the words. And you remember the story of the woman, the widow's mite, right? The woman who gives all that she has. There's not much, what little she has that she gives. Sometimes that is all you are going to have to give is the words. In fact, there are going to be times when you are not even going to have the words, but all you're going to be able to do is just kind of (laughs) this before the Lord, you know, just maybe call his name, maybe not even that, but just here I am, broken. And I think that when you give all that you have to give, there is great rejoicing in heaven over that. If you give out of a full heart, that's easy. Anybody can give out of a full heart. Anybody can sing and praise when their heart is telling them to sing and praise. What's hard, what costs, is when you give what little that you have out of a sad and a broken heart. That rejoices the angels in heaven, I believe. God himself has a special blessing for those who confront the martyrdom of doubt and who respond to it by offering to him whatever they have, however small. If it's only, if it's only the words of the Lord's Prayer that seem to echo around in your head like a, in an empty gourd, or even if it's only just holding your hands up before him, saying, at best, at most, saying, Lord, help my unbelief. If that's all you have to give, God receives it joyfully. And I believe and I know from my own experience that he has a blessing to offer you in return for that. This is our calling, people. I really think it is. Our calling is not to pretend that we don't have doubts, not to celebrate our doubts and feel good about them, but rather to see an environment of doubt as our martyrdom. And in that martyrdom, when God gives us a full heart, Nothing can be more wonderful. We're thankful, we celebrate, we rejoice, but some days he doesn't give us the full heart. And what little we have to give, we give to him. And in that way, we become real martyrs. We become witnesses to the gospel, to ourselves, and then also to others. It means a great deal for others to know that we, when we don't feel like it, when our heart is not in it, are nevertheless striving to be faithful. And when we do that, 
That is because of God working in us. And the more that we do it, the more we will realize it, the more we will see it, the more we will experience it. The dark times will never go away. The doubts will never go away completely. But there will always be a blessing for us if we confront our martyrdom with humility and we give to God whatever we have, however little it may be. I understand that the custom at this point is for you to stand and receive a blessing. So let's follow custom then. Dear Lord, this day and every day, uh, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And Lord, we pray that you will give us the gift of faith, which comes only from you, which only you can supply, and that you will teach us to receive it joyfully whenever it comes to us. Give us faithfulness, Lord. Give us a spirit of obedience. Give to us who are empty from your abundance. And may the blessing of our Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be upon us today and remain with us always. Amen. Thank you.